0: Father, we pray now as we turn to your word, that you'll open our minds and hearts to what you have to say to us. I pray that you'll guide me in the words I say, and that I'll say nothing that uh, is not pleasing to you. Pray that you'll, your spirit will move in us, and that you'll guide us to obedience. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, this morning, we're going to be in the book of Isaiah, chapter 52, starting at verse 13, and then we're going to go through the end of chapter uh, chapter 53. Uh, a few days ago, I had to go to a car dealership about some work on a car. And of course, they have all the signs there that are going to you, try to convince you to buy the, a new car. And, and there was one there that said, you know, zero down, zero payments for every how many months, zero interest. And then it says underneath that, for well-qualified buyers. <laughs> See, a lot of deals are out there. There's a lot of things that just seem too good to be true, and they they probably are. There's always some fine print that you have to look at and that you have to notice. You know, near where I grew up, there there is a property and a house that, honestly, if I must confess, I get covetous over. (laughs) And, you know, I look at it and I think, wow, that would be a great place to live. And if someone ever called me and said, you know, that can be yours for nothing. You know, I would even think in that case, there has to be a catch. You know, Though I would drive up to Georgia to see what that catch was. <laughs> you know. A lot of people hear about the grace of God, the forgiveness he offers. The fact that it's all free to us anyhow. And they think, oh, that's, there's got to be a catch. There has to be something that I'm missing there. There has, there has to be some cost that has to be paid. And the truth that this scripture presents to us this morning is, yes, there is a cost and it's already been paid. Amen. Let me read the passage to you. Starting at verse 12 of Isaiah, uh, excuse me, verse 13 of Isaiah 52. Isaiah writes, Behold, my servant shall act wisely, shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge. Shall the righteous one be? Right, shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous? And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will provide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, and yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Uh, Isaiah, uh, this is several centuries before the time of Christ. And he's writing this before, all this before the Babylonian captivity. And if you look at Isaiah, there's parts where where he's writing about what's happening then, what's going to happen and when they're taken into captivity. And then from chapter 40 on, he is writing about what's going to happen afterwards. He's saying, you will be set free, you will be released, and, and this, this, this is what it's going to be like. And in, and in those chapters from 40 on, there's certain passages that we call the servant passages. And sometimes the servant is talking about Israel itself. Sometimes the servant is talking about someone else. For example, in one passage, he says, my servant Cyrus, who was the the king of Persia, and and he talks about how God was going to use him and make him a servant. And then there's other passages like this one where he's clearly talking about the Messiah, the one who is to come. And in this passage we look at there's a part the first few verses where he's where he talks about Jesus has done something the Messiah has done something and the nations see it and they're amazed and then there's another section where he talks about what he did and then there's another section where he talks about what God is going to do as a result so as we look at this let's start off in verses 13 through 15 of, of Isaiah 52 let me read those again Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance. His form beyond that of the children of mankind, so he shall sprinkle many nations. Kings shall be shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard they understand. These verses are a summary that explain briefly what's about to follow in chapter 53. In other words, it sort of begins with the end. Christ raised, Christ lifted up, Christ exalted. Yet before all that, the Christ, the Messiah, would suffer greatly. He describes it in stark terms of of disfigurement, saying his appearance was so marred Beyond human semblance. In other words, he would suffer so greatly and be mistreated so badly that he would not even look human. And the result of that, of that suffering, is that would be the sprinkling of the nations. Doesn't say with what, but we can understand as we look through the passage and as we begin to understand what he's talking about. He's talking about being sprinkled with the blood of the Messiah. See, the language throughout this passage is is the language of sacrifice. It's the language of a guilt offering, a sin offering. In the Old Testament, in the law, it talked about giving a, a sacrifice for the forgiveness of your sins so that your sins could be covered. And when the person who had sin would bring that sacrifice, they would, they would bring it to the priest, and the priest would pray over it, and the person would have to lay their hands on the sacrifice and confess their sins on top of the sacrifice. And by doing that, they were in one essence saying, this sacrifice, this animal represents me. And I'm putting my sins on this animal, and this animal is going to suffer the price of my sins. And the animal would be killed in place of the person who brought it as a sacrifice. Now, I'm going to come back to that phrase sprinkling the nations near the the end of the sermon. Because if you know anything about me, I'm not going to pass up on anything that talks about reaching the nations. So I'm, I'm coming back to that. So just brace yourselves for that. The rest of the sermon will take 10 minutes. That'll take an hour, but you'll be fine. Okay. Uh, so the next few verses, and we can get to 53, they, they go into some detail. Begins talking about who has believed what he has heard from us. There's a sense, I mean, if you look at those first few verses that I just read, okay, someone's going to be killed and suffer, and they're going to be uh, disfigured to the point where they don't even look human, but they're going to be exalted, and everyone's going to be amazed, and kings are going to see him and and shut their mouths. That first sentence, who has believed what he has heard from us, is just a way of saying, yeah, that sounds pretty unbelievable. That sounds rather amazing. Who's going to believe that? And then he says, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm always represented the power of God. So he's saying, who has seen God's power in this? Then he begins to describe what Jesus would be like, what the Messiah would be like. He said he, he, he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of the dry ground. The Scripture teaches that from the root of Jesse, from the uh, from the stump of Jesse, the Messiah would come. From the line of David, the Messiah would come. So you would expect this great, powerful King. But he's coming out of dry ground. He would be born, born at a time that being a descendant of David didn't mean much. It would be as if the line of David had disappeared. And he'd be young, tender shoot, and he says of him, he said he had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Basically, the the only description we have of Jesus' appearance says he wasn't that good looking. He wasn't a Hollywood star playing the part of Jesus in a movie. He didn't look great. He just looked like an average guy. There was nothing about his form, his look that would attract people to him. There was no beauty there that they would say, hey, that guy's going to be a superstar. He was despised and rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. And when he walked by, people wouldn't even look at him because they despised him so much. They esteemed him so little. But in contrast to that, the truth of the matter is he bore our griefs. He carried our sorrows. Every grief you have, Christ carries. Every sorrow you have had or, or having, Christ has carried. But the people would look at him and see all that and say, well, he, God must hate him. He's stricken. He's smitten by God. He's afflicted. No. He, he, surely he must be doing something wrong. But the suffering he carried he was pierced for our transgressions he was crushed for our iniquities and what was what he suffered was the chastisement the punishment that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed All that is sacrificial language. Christ died in our place. He was a substitute for us. He was like that animal sacrifice. Perfect without blemish. Given in our place. That we might be forgiven. Now I need to stop a moment. And talk about that phrase. With his wounds we are healed. Because some people take that. And run with it, way out there. Now, now there are passages in the Gospels where the writers connect this that phrase with Jesus Christ's healing ministry, that He would heal people. There are other passages, particularly in, in, in Peter's writings, where he ta- where he connects that with our forgiveness for sin. That sin is the wound we have that is healed. What it does not say is that a Christian will never suffer. That a Christian will never get sick. That if a Christian is sick, there must be something wrong with them. That's not what it says at all. We have said goodbye to too many dear saints who've been faithful to this church in the past few years to say, yeah, something's wrong with anybody who gets sick. What we can understand from that is that when God chooses to heal in this life, it is a foretaste of the ultimate healing that we will have when we are in his presence. And that when we are forgiven our sins, that we have the greatest and best healing that we can have and the healing that we most need. So all the language here, once again, is of that ideal of sacrifice. Let me read on a little bit further. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us, of us all. Uh, Why does the Bible compare us to sheep so much? Because they're really not the brightest of animals. Yeah, they will go the wrong direction unless someone leads them. Um, Someone uh, near where I grew up had sheep. Sheep raising was not common in North Georgia. But someone, al- someone did. And invariably, as I'd be driving home from University of Georgia in Athens to my hometown of Maysville, those sheep would be in the road. And they wouldn't move. I mean, and, I mean, we're not talking, I know what you're thinking, North Georgia dirt trail. No, we're not talking that. This was a major highway. Okay. At that point, it was three lanes across. Now it's four lanes across. Okay. And those sheep would be in the road, and somebody would have to come out and get them out of the road. Sheep have a tendency to go astray. We have a tendency to sin. We natu- are naturally, because of the fall, inclined to turn and go the wrong way. So all we like sheep have gone, gone astray, and he even says everyone. Let's just make it clear, he says. Every one of you, every one of us has gone astray. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But the Lord laid our sins on him. On this one who'd be a sacrifice in our place. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. He, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Uh, when we lived in Central Asia. Uh, there's a particular festival that uh, the Muslims there would have. It's called Gurban Bairama. And it was, a, it was a day when they remembered that when Uh, Abraham uh, took his his son and was about to sacrifice him. We say Ishmael. No, they say Ishmael was the son. We say Isaac was the son. They say it was Ishmael. So they, on that day, to celebrate it and to recognize it, they will sacrifice a sheep. They will kill a sheep. And you, you drive down the road and you just see at a given place, like, you know, Big, big flock of 50, 100 sheep. And people would go and they would buy one and it would be, it would be sacrificed there on the side of the road. Here was the amazing thing. You never heard a sheep cry out. Never said a word. Never fought back. It just simply allowed itself to be turned over, laid on its back, throat slit, And never made a sound. Jesus, like a sheep being sacrificed, made no sound. He didn't fight back. He didn't use his power to free himself from what they were doing to him. He accepted it gladly because he was dying in our place. He died for our sins willingly. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off from, out of the land of the living, living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a man, rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. He was crucified among, among criminals. He was buried in the tomb of a rich man. And those who were looking at it at the time didn't think much of it. They just thought, well, that troublemaker's gone. Or that person we put all our hope in is dead and we have no hope left. But all of this was God's plan. Verses 10 through 12. And it was the will of the Lord to crush him, and he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and shall bear their iniquity. Earlier, the people had assumed that the servant was cursed by God, afflicted by God, that God hated him. And these verses make it clear that God was pleased with him. That this was God's pleasure to do. Now that bothers a lot of people. And I, you know, as I read, as, a study. Every now and then, I'll run across someone who who gets to the crucifixion and gets to the idea that Christ died as our substitute, and it just it just gets all over them. Now, I've I've heard people look at this and say that was cosmic child abuse. I've heard people describe it in terms of God the Father was this angry wrathful person and his son had to jump in front of him to keep him from killing us. It's as if they never got to the verse that said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. This was an act of God's love. God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit together saw this as the plan of redemption. God the Son willingly gave his life. God the Father gave him. They took the pain and wrath of our sin on themselves that we might have eternal life. It was not an act of child abuse or whatever you want to call it. It was an act of love. And by his sacrifice, he justifies many. And God exalts him who died for others. Verse 12, therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. I know I don't pronounce transgressor the Ray. It's supposed to be pronounced. I'm sorry. I'm from Georgia. Give me a break. Okay. <laughs> In the book of Acts, Peter, when he is speaking, defending the preaching of the gospel, and he's talking to the religious leaders, he says, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has now become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. He is the way, he is the truth, he is the life. And that has implications for us not just for, the unbel- for unbelievers, that has implication for us as believers. When you think about it, and I'm talking to you as individual believers right now, those of you who know Christ, when you think about the price God had to pay for our sin, when you think about the suffering Jesus had to pay for our sin, how can we not take sin seriously? You know, even before I was Baptist, because of where I grew up in Georgia, you know, people would ask, what, what, what religion are you? And I'd say Baptist, because in my hometown, you couldn't really be anything else. We didn't have Methodists. We didn't have Presbyterians. It was just Baptist. You were either Southern or independent, but you were Baptist. Okay. And even if you had not gone to church in years, even if you were not baptized, even if you didn't know what you believed... When they asked you what religion are you, you said, Baptist. And and during that time when I was not really regular in church, it seemed like when I did go to church, I learned two things. Drunkenness was a mortal sin, but gluttony was okay. Y'all have heard it too, apparently. (laughs) Here's the thing. Read through Scripture. And those two words come in the same sentence over and over and over again. There is no sin we can joke about. There is no sin that we can take lightly. Because every sin we committed put Christ on the cross. And what put Him on the cross is something we should hate, and we should despise, and we should avoid. I told you I'd get back to that word nations. And here I go. Okay. Ah, they set, reset the clock. <laughs> I looked at it when I first got here and thought, wow, an extra hour, it's going to be awesome. But Okay. That word nations, to the, to the Jews who would hear it, that meant basically everyone who's not us. That means all those people out there, all these other, you know, that's, that's, the, that's even the Babylonians, that's the Persians, that's the Moabites, that's those people over in the city of Tyre, that's, that's we don't even like those people. And Isaiah says God's going to save them, many of them. Church, that word nations means everybody who's not here. Whether they're in Milton or on the other side of the world, it means all of them. Christ died for them. Christ gave his life for them. He shed his blood for them. And if Christ died for them and we know Christ, then we have a responsibility to live and to tell others. We collectively as a body of believers, as a church, let me, there's something I got to stop here for a moment and talk about. Recently, I heard someone talk about, you know, put it this way. Jesus started one church and all the local churches are outposts of that church. I got a problem with that. When Jesus spoke in Revelation, he said to the messenger at the outpost in Laodicea, he said, no, though, to the messenger of the church in Laodicea, and the church in Smyrna, and the church in Philippi, the church in Ephesus. You are the church. You're not an outpost. And I don't care whether it's a church of 30 or a church of 1,000, you are the church. And God has given us everything we need to do, all that he calls us to do. He has given us all the spiritual gifts we need. He has given us all the resources we need. Everything we need is in our church. He's provided it. You are the church. And if we are obedient, there's nothing that God calls us to do that we cannot do. Okay, now I'll get back to this. The church is two things. It's a foretaste of the kingdom, and it's a sign of the kingdom. Now, Jesus is coming back. He is establishing his kingdom on this earth. He is is in the process of establishing that kingdom now as we share the gospel and as we take as more and more people are reached. We are a foretaste of the kingdom in that as we live together as a body of believers, as fellow Christians, as a family, forgiven and understanding what that means and growing more and more into likeness of Christ, as we love each other, as we care for each other, as we take care of one another, the world looks at us and sees and has to think, that must be what the kingdom of God is going to be like. We are a foretaste of the kingdom. But we are also a sign of the kingdom. We point out the fact that there's more to come. That Christ is coming back. And to know him and to be with him for eternity, you must have trusted in him as Lord and Savior. Because in this gospel of the kingdom, Paul said of first importance is that Christ died for our sins, was buried, and he was ra- and raised from the dead All according to scripture. That is the gospel that we must proclaim. And that is what we must be telling people and sharing with people. That is what we are to invest our time, our talent, our treasure into taking into this community and all over this world. Now, inside of me there is this missiology professor who wants to get out. And teach you all about missions. And I've got a two-hour lecture on being a sign in the foretaste of the kingdom. Anyone want to hear it? Oh. <laughs> <Aww. laughs> okay. I guess y'all want to go home. <laughs> but our task is to be just that. With each other, love one another. Care for one another. Be present for one another. Minister to one another. So that people who are on the outside look at that and say, I want to be a part of that. I want to taste that. We are to proclaim the gospel to everyone. But perhaps you're here and you haven't believed that gospel yet. and You've never trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior. Perhaps you're sitting there and saying, surely my sin isn't bad and I'm good enough. Well, if you believe that, are you saying that what Jesus did wasn't necessary? Perhaps you're saying, surely I, I have to do more than just trust him. Well, if that's what you think and that's what you believe, are you saying that Jesus didn't do enough? God offers his salvation to us as a free gift. All we need to do in response, all you need to do, if you're here, you're not certain you have that relationship with him, is just to repent of your sins, turn your back on them, put your faith in God, move toward him, and you'll be saved. That's all God asks. Perhaps you're thinking, well, I don't really want to do that. Well, then my question to you is, are you looking for something in hell? Because that's the only other option you got. What's there that you would want? Jesus offers you salvation. He has given his life for you. He has expressed his love for you. For God so loved the world, you can easily say for God so loved Randy. Or for God so loved, you put your name there. He gave his son for you. Will you receive him today? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace, your mercy. We thank you that your The gospel is authenticated by prophecies such as this that came centuries before Jesus came. Father, I pray for us as a church that we would live out the implications of that gospel. That we would live lives transformed as people forgiven by you. And that we would boldly share that gospel message with those around us. And I pray for anyone here this morning who does not know you as Lord and Savior. That your spirit would touch their lives. That you would call them to yourself. And they would not leave here today without having made that decision to follow you.